Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, um, we come into this place this morning um, after what's been a crazy week. We've seen uh, that our country is still deeply divided. We've seen another mass shooting here in our own state. And in the last couple of days, God, many of us are uh, reeling from the fires that we've seen in different parts uh, of the state that impact people that we know, people that we love uh, directly. And so it is with heavy hearts, God, that we come into this space this morning. And we pray for each of those things. We pray for reconciliation where there is division. We pray for peace where there is violence. We pray for hearts to be healed and comforted where they've been broken. And in particular, God, we do pray for the men and women who are fighting these fires, even as we speak, God, that you would be with them, protect them. May there be no more loss of life. And may these fires be put out swiftly. Um, and may those who have been affected uh, be, begin the very difficult process of, of picking up the pieces and, and seeing what is next. On top of all that, God, we bring in into this time this morning the challenges of our life, all the other things that we are facing and dealing with. And we ask now that you would hold our burdens for us, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that we would be... Um, in tune with your voice and your spirit so that we can move in the direction that we need to move, that you want us to move this morning, God. It feels like things may be spinning out of control, and yet there is this deep promise that you are uh, mysteriously, uh, in ways that we can never fully understand, in control. And so we confess uh, our struggle with believing that, like the man in the New Testament, God, we believe. Help us, though, in our unbelief. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen. All right, so um, we are going to uh, not fully wrap up, but mostly wrap up our conversation uh, in paradoxology here today. Um, we'll tie a bow on this thing next Sunday. Um, but before we do that, I just want to say, back in August when the, when the car fire um, devastated Reading, we dedicated our monthly care and compassion offering to, to helping out um, in, in a small way uh, by partnering with a local church there that was doing some great stuff. And in the same way, we are going to do that again this month. Uh, we know people who have been very directly impacted by the campfire up in Paradise, and so we're going to... Uh, over the next week, do our best to figure out who we can be partnering with. But next Sunday, we will move our Care and Compassion offering up so that we can collect that on the 18th as part of our uh, Thanksgiving and baptism celebration. And all the money that we collect in that offering will go to uh, helping uh, victims of the campfire and, and to partnering with um, people who are doing good work. Uh, in that place during this time. So keep that in mind. I, I know this is sort of a, a heavy note on which to start today, but I, I just think we needed to name it and, and say that and commit to doing that as a community. Uh, so be praying about that, uh, of course, over the course 
of the week. Now, one more, one more little plug here before we really jump into this. As we come to the end of this series, I know there are some people who, who like to you know, know a little bit more or do a little bit more research. Uh, this conversation that we've been in, the frame for it and the title come from a book called Paradoxology, coincidentally enough. Uh, by a guy named Krish Kandaya. He's become one of my favorite writers and thinkers. He's written a number of really great books. And so if you are interested in, in, in continuing on with this, would highly recommend uh, picking this book up at some point um, to go a little bit deeper and further with the conversation that we've been having here, both on Sunday and throughout the week in our groups. All right, now today, again, as we come in for a bit of a landing here, we are diving into maybe the deepest mystery of them all. How do we know and discern God's will? Some of us, maybe a lot of us, have, have kind of a weird relationship with God's will. I, my friend Mike and I, when we were in college, our senior year of college, we had this joke uh, about this magical piece of paper that was going to arrive in our mailbox that would explain to us uh, the rest of our lives, everything that we needed to know. We'd run into each other on campus and we'd be like, did you get that paper yet? And, and, and we'd be like, no, not yet, but don't worry, it's coming tomorrow. And, and, and it was this joke, but it, was, it came from this very deep place, right? This fear about what was going to happen next and what we were supposed to be doing with our lives and the jobs we were going to take and the big decisions that we were facing as we moved on into the next thing. My friend Drew had this thing where when he, he gets a headache or a cold, he doesn't take any medicine. And I, I remember the first time I interacted with us, I'd be like, Drew, just like there's a pill for that. You, you know, you can do something about that. And he'd be like, no, it's God's will. And, and I, I, I'd, I'd say, Drew, what, do you, what does that mean, God's will? And he's like, no, I have this headache, I have this cold because God is trying to teach me something. He's trying to make me a stronger person. So to take aspirin would be to sort of undermine God's will. This is the same guy who had massive reconstructive surgery on his knee when he wiped out snowboarding. But when it came to a headache or a cold, God's will, don't need to do anything about it. Now, the point here is not to, um, you know, make light of this or to make fun of anybody, but simply to demonstrate that we oftentimes have this very dysfunctional relationship with God's will. And, and, and discernment and trying to figure out what we are supposed to be doing. Now, it needs to be said that this process of discernment is extremely challenging. There is no uh, code that gets cracked, you know, with a, a little decoder ring that you get in a cereal box. This is a significant challenge for us as human beings. On the one hand, though, Scripture makes it very clear that God is a verbal God. The God that we worship is a God who communicates with us. He is a God of words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. And remember that phrase, all things. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. This is, of course, talking about Jesus and the mystery that is the Trinity. But there's this truth that God is a verbal God, a God who has communicated with us. And yet there are times in our life where it feels like this verbal God is not saying anything to us, is silent. 
And certainly there are, are, are details of our lives that God doesn't speak to. He doesn't tell us, or at least he doesn't tell me. I don't know how God speaks to you. But he's not telling me what to wear or what to eat for breakfast when I wake up in the morning. And then in even, in, in even bigger areas of our life, there are times where God is silent. And it's in those silences that we can become paralyzed. God, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to be doing? How am I supposed to be responding to this thing? So this is what we are calling the Esther paradox, the God who speaks silently. And it's a paradox that, again, plunges us into maybe the deepest mystery that we've wrestled with this entire journey. This mystery summed up so well by none other than the great philosopher Forrest Gump. I don't know if we each have a destiny or if we're all just floating around accidental-like on a breeze. So how does God's will and our freedom work together? Now we're looking at Esther today. So if you have your Bible, open to the book of Esther. Esther, sort of a strange placement in our Bibles in that it's one of the last books chronologically of the Old Testament, but it comes sort of in the middle of the Old Testament, right before the Psalms. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will come around and make sure you have one. Otherwise, open with me to Esther Chapter 1, I, I, I love the story of Esther, and I think it's such a great capstone to our journey that we've been on through the Old Testament here over the last eight weeks. It's a very strange story. The events of the book take place during a time in Israel's history. They are, they are deep into this era of exile, far from home, a long time since they've been home. The hero of the story is a woman Part of her story is marrying an unbelieving Gentile king. And through her, through her courageous action, the people of Israel are saved, which is a really good thing. But then at the end of the book, there's this bizarre scene of, of violence where they just sort of let their enemies have it. And, and it's like, what is that all about? <laughs> and then maybe the strangest part of all, to top it all off, God is never mentioned in this book. No, no God, no Yahweh, nothing. So this, this story, the Esther story, every bit as weird and confusing as anything that we've encountered to this point. And then on top of all of that, if you've been in church for a while, if you've been around uh, church conversations, you probably know the story of Esther. You've probably heard it before. And, and you've probably heard a sanitized version of the story. And yet this is one of the gnarliest stories in all of Scripture. So what I want to do first is just give us an overview of the major plot points, and then we'll kind of break this down a little bit more. So if you have your Bible, Esther 1, we'll begin right at the very beginning, 1-1, where we read this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full, get this, 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So here we're introduced to Xerxes, 
king over the empire of Persia. This is a dude that likes to party, all right? 180 days plus seven more days of just this excessive display of his wealth and power. And everything is going great. Everyone's having a really good time until it's all disrupted by his queen who's named Vashti. Skip down to verse 10 with me. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come, and the king became furious and burned with anger. So let's desanitize this for just a moment, all right? Xerxes is drunk on wine and also on power, right? When it says he's in high spirits, he's not just feeling good. He's been partying for, a, for half of a year. And then in the middle of this revelry, he asked his queen to come out. And it says in your, at least in the NIV, it says wearing her crown. This is a nice way of saying wearing only her crown. Then after she refuses to come out, there's this, there's this outburst of anger. There's this dumping of the queen. And then there's this edict that all the men in the empire get their wives in check, which feels like a bit of an overreaction, if you ask me. Okay, there's some deep psychological stuff going on in Xerxes' heart. Now, to find a replacement, and this leads us into Esther chapter 2, so if you have your Bible, keep, keep following along with me. Esther chapter 2, Xerxes holds a year-long bachelor-style beauty competition to find the replacement queen. And this is where we're introduced to the character of Esther. We're told that she's quite beautiful. She's drafted into the competition. She actually ends up winning. And again, it's this year-long sort of degrading process um, that results in her being chosen. In the midst of this, we're introduced to another very critical character, this guy named Mordecai, Esther's uncle, also kind of her adopted dad. And, and uh, Mordecai discovers that there is a plot afoot to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai tells Esther about it, and Esther is able to thwart this plot, and both Esther and Mordecai gain a level of political capital as a result of this. Then we're introduced to the real villain of the story, a guy named Haman. Haman is second in command to Xerxes. He's kind of like a combination of the top general and the vice president. And he also, very full of himself, and he likes to sort of walk around and have people kneel down in his presence. As this is happening, Mordecai is the one person to say, no, I'm not going to do this. Mordecai refuses to kneel. And Haman, being this supervillain character, decides that, that not only is he going to kill Mordecai, but he's going to wipe out all of the Jews. So Haman goes, he presents his case to Xerxes. Xerxes gives him the stamp of approval. And then Haman, in his uh, excitement and glee over this, ha has this big pole uh, erected on which he's going to impale Mordecai to sort of set an example for everyone, you know, don't mess with me, I'm the man. Now, to make a long story short, Esther and Mordecai work together to thwart this plot. And in a great ironic twist, it's actually Haman who gets impaled on the pole. Pretty awesome moment of justice. <laughs> 
But um, we're doing just you know, a quick flyby here. But this is a sick, twisted story. This, involves, this story involves sexual exploitation, misogyny, personal vendettas, political gamesmanship, assassination plots, and genocide. And through all of that drama, God never speaks. No one references or quotes scripture. We're not even told about anybody praying. And yet here it is in our Bibles. Now, there are, at least from my perspective anyway, there are too many coincidences, too many unlikely scenarios to discount God's hand in all of this. And yet the question that hangs over the story of Esther is where is God in all of this? Where is God in this story? He's, he's in a way almost more conspicuous through his absence. And it raises a bunch of questions for us. Does God ordain these events and cause them to happen? Or does he use these crazy events to achieve his purposes? And what is the difference, if any, between those two questions? Now, the, the story really hinges on a scene that unfolds in Esther chapter 4. So I want us to take a, a little bit of a closer look at this. At the beginning of the chapter, Mordecai has put on sackcloth and ashes to mourn in solidarity with his people. Because, again, his people, the Jews, are going to be wiped out. Esther gets word about this. She wants to know what's up. Why are you so bummed out? She's very insulated from all that's going on. And so she's curious to know why, why is my, my uncle in mourning? So Mordecai sends her a copy of the edict to wipe out the Jews and then asks her to use her position of power and influence to intercede on their behalf. And at first, Esther hedges. She says, I don't know if you totally understand how this works. Like, I can't just walk in there and tell the king, don't do this. It's against the law. I, I, I could pay a price for this. I could even be killed. And so Mordecai sends her this message back. This is maybe the most uh, famous passage within the Esther story. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Now pause there for a moment. That's actually a pretty incredible statement. He wants Esther to act and to do something about this. But, but Mordecai has this great faith recognizing even if you don't, God is going to save us somehow. Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And then this, this statement, who knows? but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Who knows? Such a great speech. Every time I read this, my heart kind of beats a little bit faster. I'm like, oh, yes, Mordecai. But think about this from Esther's perspective just for a few moments, all right? She's been, again, through this crazy process, uh, exploited, degraded. She's gone from, from a nobody to now being queen of a vast empire, a powerful empire, a wealthy empire. And then on top of all that, the only reason she's in this position to begin with is because the last queen had the gall to go against the king's wishes. So here she is. She has some comfort now. 
She has protection and, and privilege. She's isolated in many ways from, from the events and the ups and downs that Mordecai is entrenched in. And so she doesn't really need to listen to him. But she does. Ultimately, she does. Look at verse 16. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. How awesome is that? (laughs) If I perish, I perish. So you see, for Esther, God's silence does not create paralyzing inaction. She definitely has to wrestle with this. She definitely has to weigh the cost of taking action. But God's silence is actually an invitation to exercise her faith. To do something and then to see what happens. Now I think that this scene helps us hold the tension of this paradox. Between free will and sovereignty, God's voice and our own discernment, the God who speaks silently. So first, let's talk about God's part in all of this. God's sovereignty. Scripture says, the Psalms say in particular, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth. There is this repeated truth all throughout the story of Scripture that God is in control of his created world. And when we look at the larger story of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, what we've been looking at for the last seven or so weeks, It appears that what is happening in the Esther story is that God is using all these crazy circumstances. The rule of Xerxes, the dismissal of Vashti, the choosing of Esther, the voice of Mordecai, the plot of Haman, all of these things to further his purposes. In particular, preserving his people, who he had promised all the way back to Abraham would be this vehicle of blessing for his whole creation. So the story of Esther reminds us of the good news that in the midst of the craziness of the world, God is in control. It can be really hard to believe that in the moment. But the overwhelming reminder of Scripture is that God is in control even in the midst of crazy things. In the New Testament, we're told this about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, and here's that phrase again, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is is before all things and in him all things hold together. Even when the circumstances in our lives are not clear, even when we do not understand what is happening in the moment, And how it will all turn out, we are invited to trust the God who holds all things. And who, we're told a couple of verses later, reconciles all things to himself. So one of the mysteries of Esther, of scripture, of our faith, is that how this works, the the details of this, the mechanics of this, are not really explained to us. They're not spelled out for us. And that's part of the the beauty and the challenge of a life of faith. 
and even one of the ways that we get to exercise our agency, will we trust, even if we don't understand, exactly what's going on? Will we trust even if we don't understand what is going on? The Esther Paradox teaches us that God is deeply, intimately involved, whether he is speaking clearly or not. And so part of the challenge for us is to trust that that's happening. The other part is to hone our radar so that we can know and discern when and where God is speaking to us. Now this is a bit of a tangent here, so just bear with me for a moment. I was interviewed uh, a couple of weeks ago for, uh, at a radio station, a Christian radio station, for this particular program that they do interviewing local pastors. And as I was sitting there waiting for the interview to get started, they were, they were kind of pitching me on all the ways that this is going to be like a really great thing for you and for your church. And, and, and part of the pitch was this. We say the name of Jesus at least seven times an hour on our radio station. Isn't that great? So essentially they have this quota. Part of what makes them distinctly Christian is the number of times they mention Jesus per hour. I wanted to be a little snarky here and ask them how many times they mention the great commandment. How, how many times per hour do you say love God and love your neighbor as yourself? I didn't say that. I chickened out. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Here's where I'm going with this, okay? Discernment is really hard. It is a massive challenge for us. And so sometimes what we do is we put labels on things to try to make it easier for us. And so we say, oh, this is a Christian thing. It has Jesus' name on it seven times an hour. Therefore, it must be a good thing. And this thing over here, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same label on it. So therefore, it must be a bad thing. This is why the book of Esther, Esther's story, is such a good gift to us. Because here's a book that would literally not make it on Christian radio. <laughs> it doesn't mention Jesus enough. And yet at the same time, there's, there's thinking, writing, art, music that is just humming with truth. And there are things that get labeled Christian that are actually pretty questionable. And, you know, pastoral endorsements of things are sort of fraught with peril, but I'm going to do this anyway, so give me some grace here. My favorite TV show of all time is called Friday Night Lights. Any, any fans? Like three of us, great. <laughs> we own this on DVD. We've watched through it a couple of times. And when I watch this show, it, it's, it's so inspiring to me as a pastor, as a leader, as a husband, as a dad, as a friend. There's a lot of truth in this show. And again, quite frankly, it's been more helpful than a lot of things that you might find in a Christian bookstore. Now, we need to be wise. We need to be discerning. We don't take in everything. We don't believe everything that we see or hear. But what I want you to hear is this. Don't take shortcuts in your discernment. It might not have the right label on it, but God might be speaking to you through it anyway. And so do we have the eyes to see? Do we have the ears to hear where God is speaking to us? Now, this all leads us to our human agency. As a pastor, I regularly have this discernment conversation with, with people. What am I supposed to be doing, uh, you know, at this point in my life? Or how do I make this big decision? Should I take this job? Should I ask this person out? Should I have this 
hard conversation with my dad? How do I know that, what God is asking me to do here? And a lot of times, the sort of presenting issue in that conversation is I want a real clear answer. And I don't have a real clear answer. And so this paralysis sets in. And what often happens is we just do nothing. And just kind of sits there and hangs there. But if you peel back a couple of layers, most of us actually know what we're supposed to do. It's just that the thing that we know to do is going to be really hard. Esther knows that confronting Xerxes could be very costly. It's the right thing to do, but oh, this could go so badly. God has given us, has given you gifts, talents, abilities. He's put you into a a, a position at a particular moment in time in this particular place, not to just sort of float through, but to do something. Esther is beautiful and brilliant. And she gains this, this power and privilege, the voice of the king of the empire, and she leverages all of that to bring salvation to her people. Mordecai is clever and wise. He can see the times. He knows how to use his influence, which is the basic definition of a leader. And again, he leverages that and his relationship with Esther to save his people. You are not here by accident. Now, in addition to our circumstances, we know that God has spoken and that God continues to speak through Scripture, through community, and especially through the life of Jesus. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. There's that phrase again, all things. And so one of the big questions of human agency is, again, do we trust the God who has spoken? Now, two challenges for us, I think, from all of this. Probably more, but these are the two that I want us to sit with this morning. The first challenge is this, get to know yourself. This one, I think, can be really hard, especially for Christians, because we have this thing where it's like, oh, it's not about me. But like Esther, you have a set of gifts, abilities, opportunities, relationships. You are here at this particular moment in time for a specific reason. And one of the reasons I think sometimes we struggle with knowing God's will is that we're not in touch with our own stories and our own selves. Esther, with the help of Mordecai, comes to this place where she realizes, oh, this is what this all means. All this bizarre stuff that I've been through. This incredible journey that I've been on has brought me to this place where I can save my people. And she doesn't just think about it and agree with it. She does it. And from the way that we're told the story anyway, God doesn't tell her to. There's no angel that shows up. There's no voice from the heavens. But she knows herself and her story and her situation, and she takes action. Now, the second challenge here is to get to know what God has said. Behind Esther's actions are... All the things, again, that we've been looking at for the last seven weeks. These promises that God made to Abraham. 
the story of deliverance from slavery in Egypt, the truth of the Psalms, the, the insights that, that Israel has gleaned over its history with God, the words of the prophets, it's all there. You get the sense that in both Esther and Mordecai, this truth has been deeply internalized. For example, think about these words from the prophet Micah. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Esther never quotes that verse, but this is exactly what she does. It's, it's there. It's in her bones. So the challenge for us is to read Scripture, memorize Scripture, talk about Scripture with each other, become so familiar with the story, the ups and the downs, the ins and outs, the contours, the big themes of Scripture, because when we are formed by this story, it gives shape and sense to our story. And it actually may be less that God is not speaking to us, and more that we just aren't listening to and acting on what he has already said. It's all there. Now, all of Scripture, the other reason we need to get to know what God has said is because all Scripture points us ultimately to Jesus. To the one who reconciles all things to himself. And Jesus offers us a fascinating window into this paradox. And the one particular scene I want us to look at as we come in for a close here is this. is Jesus readies himself for his death, to face his death. There's this intense, very intimate scene where we see the sovereignty of God interweaving with the agency of man. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, prays this. My Father, if it's possible, if it's possible, may this cup, and when he says cup, he's talking about the death that he's headed towards. May this cup be taken from me. Jesus, the, the word who was with God in the beginning, who is before all things and who holds all things together, says, if possible, take this cup from me. But then he also says, not as I will, but as you will. And he actually prays this twice. As far as we know, he doesn't get a direct answer, but he just keeps doing the next thing. Faces his trial, beatings, shame, humiliation, and ultimately death. On the cross, what does God's will look like? It looks like Jesus. It looks like the cross. It looks like power given up, a life laid down, sacrifice made so that salvation is bought. We see this in Esther's story. We see it fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And this leads us right up to our conversation next Sunday. We'll look at the paradox of the cross. But for now, I want us to sit one more time with the question that Mordecai presents to Esther. And I'll say it this way. What is your for such a time as this moment? 
Again, you are here not by accident, but for a reason. What is your for such a time as this moment? Is it responding to this message of the cross, accepting Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Is it recognizing God's sovereignty and bringing salvation to us through Jesus? Is it realizing that you are here and you have gifts and opportunities and a story that no one else has? Are there something for you to be doing here in this moment that no one else can do? Is there a risk you need to face, a conversation you need to have, some action you need to take? Because again, you are here for such a time as this. It is not an accident. What do you need to do? How do you need to respond? Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, this journey that we've been on for the last eight weeks, God, as we've looked at, at characters and questions from the Old Testament, but really the story. All the different ways that you have worked and intervened to preserve your people, to bring us Jesus, to bring salvation to the whole world. Father, this morning, there are a number of things that we can be praying for. I pray for those who are here today who have never responded to the invitation of the cross. This invitation of salvation through Jesus' life laid down for us. If there's anyone here this morning who needs to respond to that, God, would you draw them to yourself? Would they respond to that even now in this moment? God, for some of us, the challenge is to get to know ourselves a little bit better. We've, we've either not done that or we've denied the need to do that for whatever reason. But you have gifted us with, with a life, um, with all these different things and circumstances for a particular reason. And so would, would you help us to, to know that better, to know ourselves better, so that we may respond to what... Uh, you are calling us to do both now in this moment and in moments moving forward. God, there's also this challenge to get to know you and your words better. May we, re may we respond to that in, in pursuing you through reading scripture or, or getting involved in a group or just sitting and talking with someone who can help us understand uh, your word. But would we be courageous in, in pursuing the ways that you have already spoken to us. And in the midst of all that, God, would you, would you, make, um, would you make it clear what you want us to do? Some of us, we already know what we need to do. We just need to take that step of doing it. Others of us, it feels very cloudy and murky, and so would you bring some clarity to that? And then, God, underneath all of this, help us to know and to trust as difficult, as impossible as it may feel, to know and to trust that you are in control of all things, that you hold all things together. It might seem like that is the furthest thing from the truth with whatever it is that we're going through right now, but would we learn to trust that and celebrate that? 
So God, as we spend the next couple of moments in communion and worship, would you um, be stirring in our hearts, giving us the, the courage to do what we need to do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.